we're going to be talking about seed saving. And today we're going to uh, try to make this presentation practical. We're going to talk about methods of seed saving for different kinds of uh, plants. At the end, I'd really like to save some time to receive some audience feedback and allow you to tell us what's worked for you, what questions you may have. We also have some real live seeds to, uh, to shell and to husk, and we'll talk about dryness and, and how you would proceed with that, and some resources that'll be good for you to see. So that'll be uh, some neat options for you. In the next slide, and they're just getting it set up here, in the next slide, I'd like to show you a picture and have you imagine in your mind a very young boy who squeals with delight as he pulls the radishes from the ground that he's planted a month ago with his own small hands. The garden plot was small, but densely packed. There were tomatoes, right next to the tall stalks of corn and just enough room to step through. Can you picture the scene? Do you remember things like that from your childhood? And go to the next slide, Daniel. From my earliest memories, we had a garden. And though it was not large, it was always there. It was a constant part of my summer routine as a child. When we first married and before children, we started hobbyist beekeeping and enjoyed that, have enjoyed that over the years. Now with two teenage boys, we have a larger garden. The garden is a source of enjoyment and personal relaxation. It affords family activity, training, and character development. And we began this track talking about some of those advantages of seed saving. And the next slide. Gardening is simple in its basic form. You plant a seed, you keep it alive, the plant alive, and then you enjoy the harvest. But there's something in gardening for all types of personalities and temperaments. You can go as complex and as detailed as you'd like. And some of the more challenging parts are seed saving. Challenging in that you can really think hard about it, you can decide what characteristics you'd like to incorporate. And that's the, the beauty that I'd like to share with you today, the fun of seed saving. In the next slide, in the beginning, I thought that was a fitting place to talk about seeds because this is the first reference in scripture that, that describes seeds. You may know these verses from memory, and if your eyes are good enough, you can look at the, this, the board with me and let's say these three verses together. Genesis 1, verse 11. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit that yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. 
and the evening and the morning were the third day. Just as a brief aside, you see a beautiful pattern set up in the first chapters of Genesis. Not only were plants created, but the genius pattern of DNA was imparted to all life as we now know it. You see, DNA and a common thread runs from plants, and that conservation of design was also utilized in animals. A factor that now is important because of GMOs. Very similar genes and very similar decoding mechanisms are in all of life. Indulge me for a moment for a side note, but for every initiative, institution, or law set up by God and creation, we see another force in the universe setting up an opposing alternative. In Genesis, we see a benevolent creator. In evolution, we see random chance, survival of the fittest, and meaningless existence. In Genesis, we see a garden created for active enjoyment of our time to commune with God and grow food. In the industrial food machine, we see ourselves as consumers rather than producers. And we consume whatever will make others, those that want to sell to us, rich, not what would impart health. In Genesis, we see a man and a woman joined in holy matrimony as God blessed for the context of intimacy. Today, we see many other manipulated and legalized and popularly promoted perversions to what God instituted. God set out six days for labor and one day of worship. Satan would have us spend six days of leisure and self-focused commerce with no time left to dedicate for worship to God. God set the Sabbath as a memorial for our coming from his hand at creation. And Satan has rearranged the weekly calendar so that God, what God has created as the first day is now the last. And returning to seeds... God has said that every seed will bear after his own kind. While man is spurred on with technology from Satan's laboratory, this law that God set up is now no longer true. We have tapped into the genetic code, and the seed no longer must bear after his own kind. I'm not arguing against Mendelian genetics. What I'm suggesting is that it is a direct perversion against God's law to inject a flounder's gene into corn or tomatoes, to uh, place bacteria genes into corn or cow genes into wheat. And the list goes on. But again, I believe I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about this. But I, I see Genesis... 1 verse 11 and 12, having a relation to the question of GMOs. The next slide. I'd like to talk a little bit about why it is valuable to save seed. 
God made food and seeds as a combined package. And if I asked any of you, would you like to eat? You'd say yes. And I'd like to suggest that in that same yes, you should say, I want to save seed because God put them together. Very few things that we eat aren't directly associated with the seeds for that plant. It's not simply a matter of harvesting leaves like we do with the herbs. For most of our food, it involves the seed of that plant. I suggest you save seed for variety diversity. And I have a slide coming up that's going to describe the drastic loss of variety and diversity of our seed across the world. I believe that it's part of tending the garden to choose characteristics of plants and to say, I'd like a plant that has that characteristic and then choose the offspring of that plant and consistently improve and refine and mold that plant through natural means to be the character that you would like. I think that's a neat thing that I would like to excite you about for saving seeds. There's availability and the aspect of being self-sustainable. At a time when seeds may not be as readily available to simply order from a catalog, it would be nice to know how and to have seeds of our own keeping and our own, you might say, uh, development available for us to use. This last one, I'm I'm really not thinking of uh, a New Age perspective here, but I would like to suggest that you can form a relationship with different plant species. And an example of this that I'd like to share, Dan Hutton told me a story this morning. He says, years ago in his wife's family, there was a bean that has been passed down. And wouldn't you know it, it's called a goose bean. And the family story from Dan's uh, wife's family is that this goose bean, one of, the, one of the ancestors of the family shot a goose. And out of the gizzard, they were able to extract beans from this goose. They planted them and found that the beans were wonderful as far as a plant. And they kept that bean alive year after year. And I'd say that that's a pretty neat story. That's a pretty neat heritage to, uh, to have when you think about beans is something that goes back in your family and something you'd like to have an ongoing relationship with. It's a great story for seed saving, seed sharing, kind of a little bit of a morbid twist there for the sharing part, and the backstory behind seeds. I'm fascinated to hear seeds and how they came to be and what their history is. Two weeks ago, in, in my area, we had a small gardening group meeting. A person came who was not part of our little group and they delivered a precious package. The person said, these seeds have been in in my sister's family, in our family for many years. My sister is the gardener. She has cancer. She would love for these seeds to stay alive, to stay viable. And she gave us a box. A little box 
with packages of seeds. And on each one, clearly written out, its characteristics. That's a beautiful heritage to continue, isn't it? I love old tools. But sooner or later, man-made objects wear out. And I'd like to suggest that you could create an heirloom plant that is passed down through generations. I challenge you to create and build a family story of your own that revolves around seeds that you create into something that is special. I mentioned a moment ago, and this next slide is going to talk about the loss of genetic variability. This is pulled off of the internet. It's live right now. I, I pulled this for this presentation off of National Geographic. I'm not a seed researcher. I can't back up this graph, but I do believe that it is likely true that the amount of variation that you see has drastically decreased. From people saving seeds on their own family farm to going to a few seed companies that control all of the seed, that process means a loss. The number that we see here for this loss, I'll read you what's on the National Geographic site. They must have done a program on this. It says, as we have come to depend on a handful of commercial varieties of fruits and vegetables, thousands of heirloom varieties have disappeared. It's hard to know exactly how many have been lost over the past century. But a study conducted in 1983 by the Rural Advancement Foundation International gave a clue to the scope of the problem. It compared USDA listings of seed varieties sold by commercial U.S. seed houses in 1903 with those in the U.S. National Seed Storage Laboratory in 1983. The survey, which included 66 crops, found that 93% of the varieties had gone extinct. More up-to-date data is needed. You can't see it clearly from this graph, but if you look at tomato, what's listed 100 years ago in this graph, again, I didn't produce this graphic, but it's hard for you to read, but there's a number here, and it's 408. 408 varieties were sold, this graph tells me, 100 years ago, where today the number is listed as 79. This is the example 100 years ago and a few years ago. That illustrates the point that genetic diversity is being lost and a value for you to be interested in seed saving. Now what I'd like to do is have some helpers pass out our handout. What I've done is tabulated some data regarding seeds. If we could have uh, the front lights turn on and you go to the next slide, Daniel. We're going to pass out the handout and while it's being passed out, if I could have one more volunteer. All I did was, um, it's on National Geographic and I do have the actual reference in my notes. I, you could copy it down afterward. Okay. Uh, the full URL I have. But if you just do a search on uh, seed varieties is what I searched on and it was one of the top hits. This is a graph that I've produced for you that I hope will be a worksheet that you can take to your garden and use. The goal, my goal in this sheet 
was, was not to uh, wow you with my knowledge, because none of this is personal to me. Um, but I have given the references that I found useful in creating this table. Um, one of the key tools that I used was this book, Seed to Seed. And if you look at the reference column, the far right-hand side of the page, you will see listed as a reference, S to S. So if you want to look up about Amaranth, all you need to do is, more than what I've given you in this table, is look at C to C, page 189, and there's a full description of Amaranth, several pages of material that'll give you everything you need to know about Amaranth. Along with that, and let's go, let's go, uh, Daniel, to the cover of Seed to Seed, which is two down. And for this, we're going to need to dim the front lights again so that you can see the, the cover. I actually have a copy, and John Dysinger mentioned that they have several of these still available for sale. I have found this book to be very good. And it is, for seed saving, I believe it is considered an authority that, as far as I have found. There are some other seed uh, books. Uh, in fact, one other seed book is being sold here. Um, I've looked, leafed through it, and, I, and I'd say that I, I'm not so impressed with it. A second book that I'm going to refer to you, and it's in the second slide, Daniel, is... Um, the New Seed Starters Handbook. Can't quite see the picture here, but, but that gives you an impression if you wanted to look for this book. All of these are available uh, at Amazon. I would encourage you to get Seed to Seed here. It would save the Dysingers from uh, having to take the book back home. But I have found the New Seed Starters Handbook to be useful, and it is the second reference listed for every plant type that I've listed in the table. So for amaranth, you would go to NSSH, page 250, if I read that right, in the dim light here. And that gives you a reference, again, for the new Seed Starters Handbook. A third book, which does not have, its purpose is not, and go to that slide, its purpose is not to talk about saving seeds, but I have found it personally useful for the home gardener is Gardening When It Counts by Steve Solomon. And where Steve discusses uh, a specific variety and how it would relate to seeds, I've listed that also as GWIC. And you'll see that reference as, as with asparagus, page 316. So what I'd like to suggest is that this tool can be something that you can just put into your seed-saving notebook. And I hope it would be something useful for you to pull out. There's some other categories and columns that I'd like to talk about. If you could turn on the light again. I'll return to looking at the, the columns here, and I want you to follow this through with me. There's a skill level for anything that you do. Some seeds are easy. And when I have listed a seed as being easy, it really is easy. In other words, what I suggest, if there's anything that you plant that's in the easy category, I hope that I could be persuasive enough to encourage you to save those seeds this year. 
because it's not difficult to do. We're going to discuss that process. It's very simple. So if you look at amaranth, it says the skill is easy. Asparagus, medium. Beans are easy. Beets and Swiss chard is hard. We'll explain why it's hard in just a minute. And part of that explanation might be going to the, sec the third column, which is period. Amaranth is an annual. Asparagus is a perennial. And beans are an annual. And beets and Swiss chard, biennial. Because it's biennial, you've got to keep that plant alive through a winter for it to then bear seed the second year. That's all it is that makes it hard. And it's really not that hard. If you can keep it alive, you can get seeds from those just as well. But because it's not quite as easy as going to the bean plant and taking off some dry bean pods and just simply stripping out the beans, you know, that, that is pretty easy, isn't it? You know, there's nothing difficult about that at all. And uh, I've got an example here where we can just open these up and if anyone is interested in the, the, the plants and the, the seeds that I have brought, what are those? these are Calypso. And I love them because they're black and white. I what think of them as white? orca beans. That's my name. That, that, that's not the, the formal name. But they're just so cute. And I hope <laughs> afterward, if you come up and look at them, I don't know how else to describe them. They're just neat beans. A lot of beans are that way. I love the, I love the patterns of Anasazi as well. Um, I also have some other things that, that you can come up. So afterward, if we have time, come up and take a pocket full of these home. You're welcome to them. So purity and isolation notes. Wouldn't you know it? We've got to talk about purity, don't we? Because if you're going to try to keep these beans, well actually beans are really easy, but if you're going to keep some wind-pollinated varieties of plants and you'd like them to stay true into the future, you're going to need to know how to protect that so it doesn't become contaminated with something else. For case in point, let's drop down to corn. Corn is listed as a medium skill level. It's an annual. Of course, we all know corn. Probably everybody has grown corn in your home garden. It what? Tassels and ears. That's, there's nothing really complex about that, is it? So why would it be of medium intensity, you think? Wind-pollinated. It's a wind-pollinated. And how far would that go? Well, let's just look at our chart here. It's wind, outbreeding, outbreeding, medium-weight pollen, Yet it could be blown for miles, period, two miles. Do you see what I'm saying here? If you're going to keep corn pure, it is possible that pollen could blow for two miles and pollinate your corn. That's pretty extreme, I think. And, and, and maybe we should leave that at the hard category, I don't know. But what you have to do if you really want to, to do something and keep your corn pure, like Seed Savers Exchange does, is that they will bag their pollen and they will bag their ears for the ones they want to keep for seed. And so it's called medium. All you have to do is bag it. It's really not that hard. And then you have to do it by hand to introduce the proper pollen to the proper ear. Yes, in fact, we have a whole slide on that when we come back to the uh, dimmed lights. That's an excellent question. 
she say? She's asking about inbreeding and outbreeding. Because yeah. I use these terms, and we have a whole slide coming up to describe it. And in case I don't describe it well enough, your second page is um, some good materials. And you'll see terms, oh, okay. hybrid, inbreeding, outbreeding, self and fertile. The, tables, the table columns are display, explained for you, um, as well as methods of seed cleaning. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So I only show you the second page to tell you that if you didn't catch it, it's written down for you. But don't stay there because that's what we're going to talk about next. So viability. If you look at amaranth, how good, how long could you expect to keep amaranth seeds? Five years. Five years. Pretty impressive. How about that corn that we worked so hard to, uh, to pollinate? Three. Approximately three years. And the germination percentage, um, the, the, the column here, of course, you, you'd want to have a very good percentage. But this percentage is what I'm told is the USDA federal standard for germination of commercially sold seed. So my suggestion is that every year you test your own seed that you save, and at the point you drop below the federal standard for germination, so you, I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself, and I don't want to be scattered, but you take 10 seeds in the spring. If you're not going to plant that variety that year, you take 10 seeds, you put it in a moist uh, environment, perhaps a paper towel, we've all sprouted seeds as, as kids, and then come back several days later, keep it in a warm environment, come back several days later and just count those that started to sprout. If your number falls as a percentage below the federal standard, it's time for you to plant that year and renew your stock. That's, that's my suggestion for, for what that column means, the germination percentage. And we've already talked about the references. So. With that, that gives you the columns, or you might say the key to the tool that I've tried to give you. And, and this is something that, at a glance, I can say and refresh my memory on what a specific plant may need in order to save a seed. If we could dim the lights, it will go on to our slides and continue on. Perfect. Okay, so we talked about the book Gardening When It Counts, and... The next slide, it covers those very terms that we start that I kind of glossed over a moment ago. I'm adding one here called open pollinated, because hybrid is is one of the terms that is described on the back of the paper. But I thought it might be good to also just make sure we're clear about what it means to be open pollinated. If you want to save seed for yourself, and that seed is a hybrid and you plant it the next year, so I'm dropping down to the second one, what do you expect is going to happen to the plants that you grow that second year? Are they going to be exactly like the parents that you got the seed from? No. no. They won't. And if you remember back to genetics class, you'll have a variation. Depending on what kind of hybrid, you can expect 25%. 50%, 25% as far as a characteristic spread. If the parents were a little bit different genetic makeup, you could expect 50% uh, phenotype and 25% phenotype. Remember those 
those charts we used to do back in high school. Um, the point being, you're not going to come out true, and you don't know what to expect when you plant hybrid seed. You may get away with it, but I don't suggest it. If you're going to go to the effort of saving your own seed, you might as well use open pollinated. Just an interesting statistic, for it to be considered open pollinated, it must be uh, viable and, and open in the uh, pollinations uh, for seven years. I've been told is the amount of time it takes to consider a plant open pollinated. Heirloom seeds is another term that I think it's worth describing. Some seeds, um, some individuals who know a lot about seeds don't prefer the term heirloom. They think it's a marketing term. But yet, I'd like to suggest that that is often used as a term meaning that it will breed true to type. And that's really what you're wanting to get to here, is you're wanting a situation where you plant a calypso bean or you plant a Simpson spineless 80 okra plant, that you expect something similar to that the next year and the next year and the next year. We consider that, we call it breeding true to type or being a stable cultivar. Just be aware that there's some of these different terms being thrown around, but Open pollinated is what you want to look at. If you're looking at a seed catalog, you can get a, a seed that's labeled OP or open pollinated and expect, if you do your job keeping it pure, that you could keep that seed for a long time and keep planting it year after year. We mentioned hybrid. That's where That comes from plants who have a mixed parentage and whose seeds will not be true to the hybrid plant. Saving seeds from hybrids is not suggested. Now you could start your own variety if you want to do this and it breeds true for multiple years and it's been open you know, for seven years, you could name it something new. Obviously that's how nature makes new varieties is these hybrid combinations. You might ask, well, why do companies, seed companies, why are they so interested in selling hybrids? Well, if we were negative, we could say they only want to sell hybrids because you can't plant them again. You have to buy them again. But to be fair, there is a hybrid vigor that is in plants that are mixed of this kind. The plant will actually be more vigorous because it has very, uh, very different genetic makeup. And that hybrid vigor is an edge. Another uh, thing to mention is that your disease-resistant plants are most often in your hybrids. So if you live in an area that has high disease pressure and you want tomatoes to last without having that wilt come up and kill them early in the season, then you may need to consider a hybrid plant that has that disease as a resistance characteristic. So maybe it's not for every seed that you plant, but just be aware. In breeding, the plant will fertilize itself, assuring genetic purity in the offspring seeds. Most of the plants that are listed in the table that are easy are inbreeding. Beans, tomatoes, most of those, unless a bee forces its way in to pollinate it from a neighboring plant or a neighboring species, are going to breed true. 
outbreeding, these plants accept pollen from other plants, opening the potential for genetically new combinations in the offspring seeds. So these you have to either bag like the corn. To If you want to maintain that purity, you've got to protect that potential. A few plants are self-infertile, and those are noted in the table that I've given you. Pollen must come from another plant individual. And isn't that an interesting way that God assured genetic uh, variation in some of these plants? So for the next uh, slide, growing for seeds. Select the best example of plants growing and dedicate them for seed production. This selection process improves the variety year after year. Some of you may have done things like this. If you were going to breed, or not really breed, but if you were going to save lettuce seeds, what are some of the characteristics that you would consider important when you consider the plant from which you're going to take seeds for next year? Germination is a factor that's very important. Size and height. Maybe the taste characteristics that you'd like. A healthy plant. A healthy plant. You haven't mentioned the one I'm thinking of because I always have a challenge with um, lettuce bolting too early. Mm -hmm. So I might select, as well as all of those other things, which are important, but you might say every lettuce plant is going to be evaluated on those, as well as does it bolt, does it hold without bolting too soon? So you might, in that example, take the last ones to seed and keep those seeds. Some other examples, perhaps you're looking at a pea plant or some other example like that where you want the first one, maybe a tomato plant. You'd like a plant that came first on the market so that you could go to the farmer's market or have on your table an example of a very early variety. And in that example, you would select the tomatoes that came on earliest to save for your seed. And if you continue doing that, you will refine that characteristic into a stable pattern so that that seed will always deliver that characteristic. Do you see what I mean? You want to dedicate plants. Uh, to be honest, I haven't dedicated. Perhaps I'm not a purist in seed saving. But the suggestion is to dedicate the plant, a whole plant, especially if you want it to be strong and provide the best seeds you might not, if it's a lettuce plant, you might not be taking half of the leaves before you let it go to, go to uh, seed. Let that plant alone. Uh, in my example, though, how would you know until it goes to seed and which one to select last? But this is a suggestion. You want the strongest, most capable seeds you can have for your saving process. Evaluate all aspects of the plant. A point I'd like to make here is keep genetic diversity. If you're going to save corn, do you simply select one ear of corn, which has plenty of seeds for the next year for a small gardener? I'd suggest, no, you'd want to select several ears of corn, mix them up, and then take out your handful. Because that will provide corn from not just one individual, but many individuals from which will cross-pollinate within themselves in the future. Even though it's the same variety does not mean it has it is not a clone of itself. And you can still have some vigor, even though it should breed true to type, 
by having some diversity in the open pollinated seeds that you save. So now we're going to talk about methods of seed cleaning. We've got wet and fermentation as a factor and dry. Uh, I personally enjoy the dry seed uh, process. It's, it's, it's very simple and takes uh, no fiddling with at all. The wet, what would be an example of wet? Tomatoes, that's right. Your squashes, your pumpkins are somewhat, I don't know, maybe you could argue that. But uh, let's talk about tomatoes, a good example of wet seeds. If you look at a tomato seed and you scrape out the inner part of the tomato, have you ever noticed that the seed has a little gelatinous package around that seed? That gelatinous package is just fascinating. I mean, I'm just, I'm awed at the wisdom of God. Because if you think about a tomato, what would keep the tomato seeds from saying, oh, it's summertime. Why don't I sprout? You ever thought about that? What keeps a tomato seed in a nice, hot after summer afternoon in a moist environment from saying, let's germinate right now? It's that small gelatinous lining around that seed that inhibits that tomato seed from germinating. Fascinating. Well, obviously, we'd like to get rid of that little gelatinous covering in the process of saving our seed. We don't really need that. And it's better to get rid of it up front and have clean seed than worry about those seeds going moldy in storage through the winter. Are you with me? So this is the fermentation part. Not all seeds need it. Um, but let me read to you what I have here on wet seeds and the fermentation angle. Wet seeds are found in such plants as tomatoes, eggplants, and mini squashes. Cleaning wet seeds requires washing to clean the seeds and to separate them from the surrounding pulp. In addition, in some cases, wet seeds, such as tomatoes, are best fermented for several days to remove the germination-inhibiting substances from the seed coats. Fermenting can also help such seeds as members of the squash family by killing molds, mildews, and other disease organisms that may be present on the seeds after growing. To prepare seeds for fermenting, simply squeeze or scoop the seeds together with the pulp that surrounds them into a jar with a little bit of water, about half as much water as seeds and pulp. There's no need to include more pulp than naturally comes with the seeds. Store this seed pulp mixture in a warm place, say 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, for two to five days, depending on the seed type and whether the conditions are warmer or cooler. I haven't found this to be really a technical process. You can kind of just swish them around and see how they're doing. There may be some some fermentation at the top of the jar, maybe even looks gross, but don't worry, that's not going to be a permanent part of this process. When, you're, when the, the fermenting is, is done enough, simply pour the, the scum or the junk off the top. Your most viable seeds will sink to the bottom anyway, and then you can put them through a small sieve and wash them to be very clean, and then I put them onto a, some, some tissue or blotter, uh, some people have used uh, coffee filters for the process. 
Um, some seeds are sticky, so that may be a factor in how you save them, whether you know, it doesn't want to come off the filter after they dry. But whether you start with wet, whether you go through a fermenting process, or whether you have dry beans like we have here, the end result is that you want them to be dry. Nothing sits wet throughout the winter. And, and Paul, I'll try to remember to restate this question for our online audience or for the recording. And the question is, what if you haven't gone through the fermenting process, even though it was a tomato where that is suggested? In my experience, when I have tried it, and I've tried it intentionally both ways, to tell you the truth, it still worked. And I'm not sure how the seed would react to a fermenting process after it was dried. I would almost encourage, does anyone have experience on this topic? I personally, from my just perhaps erroneous intuition would be, it would be better to not introduce a fermentation process just before you go to plant the seed, just plant it. Fermentation would be the early step in my mind. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it, 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 you're too close to germination at that point, I think. Just, just plant it, and uh, next year tell me how it went. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. Uh, you might not have as good germination as what you'd like. Uh, there may be some of these factors. I know that the, I've done the fermentation process. The seeds come out beautiful, you know, and uh, that's just the way. If you're going to buy seeds from a seed store, that's the look you get if you go through this process. Harvest dry seeds from the plants when the pods and husks have dried. Some seeds can be picked before they're fully dried on the plant if rains threaten. Other plants, however, and an example is the mustard family, uh, will not finish ripening once they have been removed from the plant. So my suggestion is, just to be safe, is to harvest it as late as possible. Uh, you know, uh, obviously you can look at the table and see if there's notes about it. The mustard family would have notes about, well, you really got to be careful about this. A practical example, I was visiting with uh, Mr. Inglemeyer today uh, just before lunch, and I don't know if he's here today in this seminar or not. I don't see him right off. Um, but he was asking about you know, the dry beans. And a good suggestion that I have for you is instead of going out to the garden and picking every bean pod that you want to save for dry beans, obviously you've left them on the plant until as long as you can, and almost until the pod is dry as this, right? But instead of picking every pod off, what some have suggested, and what I believe would be a faster method after having picked 50 or so gallons of dry pods uh, myself, is pick the whole plant. Cut it off at the ground, the whole bean plant. You know, you'll have a, the bushy little shrub with all of the pods hanging on it, and set that whole plant out to dry. Then there's no question of whether the bean was disconnected from, the pod was disconnected from the plant too early, and you're able to, uh, in that process, clean the entire plant and all of the pods at once. Some suggestions I have for this could be to stuff, um, well, let me just throw out some ideas. At the, at the end of the talk, I'm going to allow you to come up and discuss how you have cleaned uh, various uh, seeds and threshed them. 
But uh, some two suggestions I'll throw out right now is put them into a, a pillow, a pillowcase that obviously you don't want to ever sleep on again. And then smash with your hands, even stomp on if the beans are dry. The, you know, the whole mass can go in there. And, and it's easy to scoop out all of the chaff, including the plant stem. And down in one of those corners of the, of the pillowcase will be the, the beans that have been threshed. Another example that, that a person told me that they have done with beans for soybeans is they just take the whole plant that has been dried say you put them in a garage or a pole barn or hang them up on a string where they can't be rained on, the plant has dried, you take a metal uh, garbage can, something hard is the idea of metal, might work with plastic, but I've tried it with metal. You take the whole plant by the stem, the, the stalk, and you just beat it like you were imagining, you know, uh, beating the inside of the, of the barrel with this plant. And that, that beating process inside the metal can will burst the uh, soybean husks and down to the bottom will, will grow your soybeans. And most often, you can pull out the entire plant along with a lot of the pods still attached. And a lot of your seeds are pretty clean just in the bottom of the, of the, of the metal garbage can. Do you vision what I'm talking about? So the seed cleaning is... is uh, is an aspect here. Let's go to the next slide, and uh, um, we're going to come back to seed cleaning in a minute. I, th I believe I have some interesting pictures. Did I pass over them? Hopefully I got this in. There's a, there's a thresher, and uh, I have a member here that's going to come up in a bit and talk about the thresher, and I had some pictures of it. Let's talk about the ideal seed storage conditions. I'd like to tell you a story about a sleeping seed. And the story is this. How does the seed know when to germinate? It's fascinating to think about. The process inside the seed works like this. And the reason you need to understand this process is because understanding how the seed wakes up will help you preserve the seed for a longer time period. Okay? And that comes to temperature and moisture which you see on, on, the, uh, on the notes here. But back to our sleeping seed. So we have an example of a bean seed here. And this bean seed has within it the desire to germinate. But when does it do that? Well, God has placed inside this bean seed the, the needed characteristic to wait until the conditions are right. So when... This seed, if it was out in, the, out, in the, out in your garden, having just naturally fallen there, when it starts to warm up in the spring, the, some of the genes turn on inside this. It's not a brain, but it almost acts like a brain, which is fascinating. Some genes turn on, and those genes sense water moisture content and temperature fluctuation. And it won't continue the process until, genetically, God has told this bean, it's time, let's go. And it'll just sit there and wait. But that process of waking up, activating those genes, turning the genes off, uses some energy. This is perhaps layman's term. I don't really know what goes on inside the seed. I just think it's fascinating. But if you put 
the seeds in a place that constantly changes temperature. The seed is constantly waking up and saying, is it time? Oh, no, it's not time. They put me back in the refrigerator. Is it time? No, no, they just were opening the refrigerator today, right? If you put them in your refrigerator and you're constantly allowing the temperature to fluctuate, the seed constantly wakes up and constantly has to go back to sleep. And that process will shorten its life expectancy, its viability. Are you with me? I think the statistics are fascinating. For every nine degrees of decrease between 32 and 112 degrees Fahrenheit, the seed's period of viability will double. That's incredible. If this seed could survive one year and I decrease its temperature in a stable way nine degrees, it will last two years. And if I go down another nine degrees, statistically, it'll last double that. That's incredible. Moisture. For each 1% of moisture reduction between 5 and 14%, the seed's period of viability will double. So what I'd like to tell you is cool and dry. People constantly ask me, where should I put my saved seeds? Think cool, dry, and consistent. You don't want this constant up and down, up and down. That up and down is the process that we go through in springtime. And the seed says, oh, it's time to go. But maybe it's still in the middle of January, so it's not time to go. I think that those are two interesting keys for maintaining seed in a good, uh, good long, uh, vi maintaining viable seed. Okay, let's look at the next slide. So, seed share seed bank. I'd like to suggest that if you come to a future agriculture conference, or if you start a community gardening group, doesn't even have to be an association, just have some friends and say, let's, let's talk about gardening and make it a little thing where you can start having influence in your community. That's what we've done in our town. Um, share information, such as, I planted this bean, and you can, you can bring the seeds in the fall and share with your little group. I planted this, this seed, this bean. I planted a 100-foot rose from it. Out of that 100-foot rose, I had this kind of success. I collected this many pods. And out of this 100-foot row, I have 10 pounds of shelled beans. That kind of data, I can't get, at least I don't know yet where to get that kind of data about every variety that I see in the seed catalog. Now, obviously, you know, it would really change according to the different land that you have and the different characteristics and the length of the growing season. But something in which I could compare seed to seed would be fascinating for me. And something that I encourage you to start taking records. If for no other reason, to compare seeds with other varieties in your own garden. This is the kind of, of statistics I save on my seeds. Then... Share seeds. You think about um, one little lettuce seed going into the ground. I let 10 or 20 lettuce plants bolt and go to seed. I thought I had enough seed to provide every garden in my entire county, and perhaps all of Michigan, I don't know. But it's incredible. God has made the multiplication factor for seeds. 
you plant one and you get from hundreds to thousands, right? And there's enough to share. That's what's beautiful about seeds. Seed banks that I'd like to talk about. I've appreciated the work of Baker Creek. They're represented here. And is Jerry here? I don't know if he was here. He was listed on the schedule. Um, I don't know Jerry myself. So I don't see any hands. His representative is here. His representative is here. I've had a nice visit with their photographer. Uh, He's across the way and has had a booth. Maybe you've gotten to talk to them. An excellent company for seed banking. There's also Seed Savers Exchange. Um, And I'd say this whether Jerry were here or not, but seed banks have as their mission to provide a wide variety of seeds, and they're very valuable for that. But you'll notice the next category I have is quality seed providers. You will not find, I do not believe you will find the same quality from a seed bank as you do from a seed producer. I personally have the favorite of high mowing seeds. Um, high mowing. And the, the, the name came from a time when you would sit on a platform above a scythe machine. Never seen one in person. Jonathan, you may know more about this than I do, but this is the idea of high mowing. I believe it was mowing high grasses. I don't know much more than that, but that's the name of their company. Excellent company. I found their seeds to have high germination and be true to what they say they are. Uh, Not always the case with uh, Baker Creek. I've I've planted several examples and had very low germination and not what's on the package. Um, Not to be critical, but I just wanted you to be, you know, that's my experience. Harris Seeds... um, I've, I've talked with several of the, of the commercial growers here, and they really like Harris seeds. Uh, Bob Gregory mentioned Harris seeds to me today uh, to mention um, just, before, just before lunch when I was visiting with him. Fedco is another that some use. My personal favorite for a commercial seed company is Johnny's. I found excellent. I mean, I cannot say enough about Johnny's seed germination rates. They print it on the package, and if it's not better, you know, they, they just provide excellent seeds. And for the Dysingers, do you guys use Johnny's? Yeah. I, I, I can't say enough good about Johnny's. I really respect their, their, uh, their process. And I also appreciate the fact that they print the germination right on the package, and uh, you know that they care about that because they say that that's what they're guaranteeing. And uh, Peaceful Valley uh, Farms is another good name. If you're looking for a place to start for your germination, for your seed saving. Obviously, in these companies, look for open pollinated. Avoid the the, the F1s or the hybrids if you're wanting to save your own seeds. Something I'd like to to push uh, and just mention is that... uh, Berea Gardens has seed packets. Have you seen these over in the cafeteria? He's not, uh, Bob Gregory is not wanting to be a seed bank, but he does have three varieties, two varieties of corn and one of a soybean that have been proven very good. Go ahead and turn on the light. That's a good idea. Um, He's selling these small packets, and for for, uh, these are... True, proven true to character 
and they're excellent seeds. My only problem with them, because I've tried to grow all of them, is that they're long season. And in Michigan, I can't get the, uh, I, can, I can eat the beans, but I can't get them to come to full maturity and be ready to plant those same seeds again. Uh, they're listed as um, 130 days, and I don't quite have that. Um, at least they didn't work out for me when I tried them uh, two years ago. So this is an example where we ourselves can start distributing seeds that we find to be winners. Next year when, when I come to a conference like this, I'm going to be pushing the provider green bean. I did it in trials this year. I cannot say enough good about it. And I'll come right back to you, John. Don't, don't forget. Um, I'll come back to you. Um, but the provider green bean, I planted out 15 different kinds, 10 to 15, I can't remember exactly, different kinds of green and dry beans, Calypso being one of mine from this year. And provider was excellent. It came on, I put them right beside my um, Blue Lake, which was my previous favorite. The provider bean came on a week earlier, more consistent through the season, heavier production, everything about them was just something to praise. And I came to realize why someone named them Provider. <laughs> so if you want beans, what I'd love to have is someone to say to, to us as a group, if you want one of the best green beans, now sure, variety's great, but if you want one, I'd love someone to have told me Provider instead of me spending a year planting 15 varieties from different companies to decide and see what was best. Where'd you find Yes, comment about beans being stringy, and that's one of the things I really liked about providers. We didn't experience that. Um, we have a, a corn bean that we've been propagating, um, and I have a big jar of those, and I got so tired of the strings, I stopped, I stopped keeping them on. It's called corn beans, and that was from a family heirloom that they would plant the corn, and then the bean would climb the corn, so they called them corn beans. But heavily strained. Yeah. yeah. Almost consider them a dry bean. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, this gives you some names of companies from which to start. And I would love to see an Adventist group like this where you plan to bring your seeds. Hopefully, they'll have someone even more experienced in seed saving than myself. And during this kind of meeting, we could actually swap seeds. It's a good point. Because in Michigan, I was able to grow the green, but not enough to, to, to be viable again. Okay. I, I don't know on his label here. He just says, okay, I only have a couple more slides, and then we're going to open this up. Let's go back to a dim, dim room and the next slide. Oh, share your experience. Well, I, um, I had some pictures of a, of a thresher. And I'm not sure how I missed them in the presentation, but turn on the light again, Andrew. Brother, come talk about a thresher that you have. It's made here in Tennessee. It's originally designed to be a Amish machine. It has a foot treadle on it that will initiate a part of the process that will tear the beans apart or the wheat apart. And 
you actually have one of these machines and you mentioned it to me. Tell us a little bit about where you got it and your experience. Well, we looked at it uh, back in the land, we got come up here at Aaron, Tennessee, and there's a company actually they're either going to be sold or go out of business, I don't know which. But they got a prototype of one made in China, and I've been looking in Italy and everywhere for a small threshing machine, some maybe you have too. But, uh, so uh, I talked to them, went down, picked one up, and it was what they said it was pretty much. It, it just has an impeller in it with loops. So what they do is they, if it's for wheat harvest, which is what it first designed for rice, you hold the shocks out of rice and let it beat the heads out of them. But I didn't get it for that, I got it for beans. So I use it exactly the opposite of the way it's designed, because I took the treadle off, it has treadle and I didn't want that, I got enough power to run it. So I took a 12 inch diameter pulley and put on there instead and a 1725 uh, uh, RPM motor on it. And it works just fine, it's got the beater bar and then it goes down to a shaker. And so what I do with my beans is, what you said, I take the whole plant now. First year we picked all the pods, let them dry, it was just too laborious, and we're just saying, we could have to be a better way than this. Now we take the whole plant, let them dry, if just pour rain. When they're bone dry, we stick them in there, and I build a hopper on the top of it, and a piece of EPDM flap on it, because otherwise they go over and put it on a huge tarp. Oh, so, yeah. so you can salvage later on. And what happens is uh, fine debris goes through the shaker, quarter inch shaker, goes down and, and, uh, and have a blower on that, blows that off. And then uh, the top has this heavy debris, the pods and everything on that. I pull that off and I let it just keep shaking and then I scoop the beans out and I put them in a bucket and then we winnow them about three times and we, we get our beans. Sounds like a lot you better can, way than sitting by the fire one pot oh, at a yeah. time. Yeah, we got like 13 <laughs> gallons shelled out in four hours or less, and that was the first time. I didn't know what I was doing. No, did it. Did our beans this year in about two and a half hours, pretty much alone. That's great. So these are the kind you of can tools. Use it. You, you can get uh, hardware cloth in any store. They're just uh, the, the hardware cloth uh, screen is uh, done with zip ties. You know, it's just held down there. So you can get any size you want for lima beans. I don't see it. I mean, the sky's the limit. So I'm concerned. Just invent and go at it. And, yeah. And uh, we're going to use it for our field corn. We got uh, bumper crop field corn this year. I don't know how many bushel we got out of 400 foot rows, probably 20 bushel. And and then we have a hand sheller, and then we I'm going to run probably that through that machine and get the debris out of it, then through a blower, and then we. I don't know if you're interested in this, I'll just tell you this real quick. You, you can get these Mexican hand grinders for about $41. You ever seen those? And uh, then you can make your cornmeal out of that mush, and it's great, it's fresh. So uh, I know in Indianapolis there's, there's some Mexican store there. You, you just play with it, Amazon. It's a very crude cast machine, but the silly thing works. All I do is it, it wasn't machined well, so I, I put a little fine grease on it. I don't want that in my flour. And uh, on both the end, the pressure end, and, the, and it's got the uh, ribbed uh, impellers, just like you would with a melling stone. And you can set it, and it's it's crude, but it does pretty good. So, yeah. Anyway, that's neat. But there's, you know, invent, modify, 
that's what that's what we can be as inventors, right? And some of our young people are inventors. I think a threshing machine would be interesting. We're out of time, but you can come up and look and play and take some beans. Uh, I'd just like to encourage you, save some seeds. It's not hard, and it's really a lot of fun. Someone online was just sharing that they've used a leaf blower for blowing away. That's a good idea, a leaf blower. To, to help with the widowing process. Uh, we use that. I should yeah. tell you that. That's we good. We use a lot of different things. Good. We just put them all in the sheet. Yes. And then just blow it. And you do that for beans? So she's mentioning, I need to remember to repeat the things from the audience here, is putting them into a sheet, hitting them with sticks, and oftentimes the old times they'd use what are called flails. That's a stick a connection of chain or leather or string, and another short stick. And what you do with that is a little twist of your wrist can bring a large stick down with more force. And it's a little bit easier on you than hitting the ground. Uh, and they're called flails. And you can beat the sheet that way and then express this. Uh, some people for uh, walnuts will drive over them in order to get those green husks off. I mean, there's lots of black walnuts, lots of creative things you can do to open the seed for, for use. Well, thank you for your patience. This has been really fun. Let's close with a word of prayer. And if any of you have extra time, you can come up and, and see some of the things we have up here. Father God, thank you for the chance to visit about the wonderful and beautiful creation that you have put into seeds. I pray that you'll empower us to save some seeds and to gain this skill in our experience. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.